Hi everyone and welcome to the STEM Equity podcast series. My name is Catherine Friend. I'll be your host today. At the podcast series, we do weekly interviews with STEM professionals and leaders, uh, mainly to discuss their personal experiences and also to determine just a series of practical measures that we as a group can take to address the inequality in STEM leadership. Today, we're going to be interviewing a wonderful researcher called Sasha Steltzer-Braid. Sasha is currently a senior researcher at the University of New South Wales. She started out doing a PhD in microbiology on environmental bacteria, but decided that she really likes human health in particular and joined the lab 14, 15 years ago working on H1N1 and respiratory viruses, such as cold, flu, and quite topical, coronavirus. Since 2010, however, with the birth of her first child, she's been working part-time. And in the last two years, she has recently organised a wonderful internship program at UTS. Lately, she's become a scientific spokesperson and leader in coronavirus research for Australia. So, Sacha, we're so pleased to have you join us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. Fabulous. Well, so can we just first go into your work experiences? I mean, what made you go into science to start off with? Oh, so we're probably talking back in high school, which is a while ago now, but um, I've always been very curious. I love asking questions and I just really gravitated towards biology and chemistry as well a little bit. And then when I got to the end of year 12, I thought, well, how can I put this into a job and took a year off to travel and then decided to do a Bachelor of Science and then really loved that process of scientific inquiry and asking more questions and did honours and then did a PhD as well after that. Mm -hmm. Did you have anybody guiding you at that stage? I mean, was anybody influencing your decisions as to how your career was moving? Um, Not especially. I mean, probably my parents at that stage were my biggest influence. My mother was a teacher and my father was more involved in advertising, but both were very curious kind of people and used to take us camping a lot. And so we'd spend a lot of time in nature and we'd do a lot of walks. I just loved the sort of the natural environment and finding out a bit more about the way that that ticks and, you know, spending time in the marine environment and all of the organisms that live in the marine environment. I just found that all really fascinating. So I was probably supported in that curiosity by my parents initially, but I I never really had a solid career plan. I've never been a a good (laughs) planner. People who do, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe they pretend to be, but they really have no idea. (laughs) No, at 18, it's very difficult. At 16, it's very difficult to define the rest of your life, isn't it? Such a young age. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some people do, fortunate people, but, you know, many of us don't. So looking through that, though, I mean, you know, obviously it must have been a big decision to study and go into your PhD and then join this lab that you're currently in at the moment. So you've been there for a while. Particularly, let's talk about having children and how has that affected you? Yes. So I had my first child in 2009. I started in the lab that I still work in, in 2006. And as you mentioned in the intro, that was to work on H5N1, which we called bird flu at the time. And so that was really exciting and lots happening at that time. And But I always wanted to have children and that was not a sort of negotiable for me. So I had my first child in 
2009 and my boss said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to come back working part-time. So that was three days a week. And he was supportive of that. And then I had my second child in 2012 and I've worked part-time since 2010. So I've done 10 years of part-time work. And I mean, in science, that's very, very challenging. And there's a lot of reasons, but funding is very, very competitive. And that's because there are a lot of really, really good people, really, really good researchers out there and everyone's scrambling, trying to get money. And so if you don't work that full time and more. And I think a lot of researchers work more than what is officially full time. And you kind of have to, to be at the top of your game, which is the people who will get fellowships and things. And they work very hard and I'm not taking that away from them, but it's difficult, very difficult as a part-time researcher Mm -hmm. to do that. And I will not get a fellowship ever. I don't think I'm competitive enough for something like that because you need to be in that very top 2% or whatever is being funded Mm -hmm. so that is stressful I think in my lab we're relatively flexible in terms of what sort of funding we apply for so it's not always government funding it's maybe not for profit or other clinical trial type avenues Um, so I've been able to be employed for quite a long time in this lab but yeah to get my own funding is difficult as a part-time researcher Mm. So as your children grow up, is that a consideration for you? Is that what you were aiming for? Or are you wanting to continue what you're doing at the moment, working underneath somebody and then having a balance of lifestyle as well with your children? Yeah. So, I mean, my family is really important to me as most people would say that, but so the past few months because of COVID-19, I've been working full-time in the lab and I've been really, really busy, which is great. And not everyone has that, you know, I appreciate that. I've been really, really lucky that I've been able to work so much during this time, but it has made me realize that I really miss that time with my kids and I don't drop them at school anymore and things that I used to do. So I do miss that. So that has been challenging, I think. So going forward, what I would like to do is still have a mix of my research position part-time. And as you mentioned, part-time, I'm also the subject coordinator of an internship program at the University of Technology, where we send students to pathology labs around Sydney, Mm. which I just love. I, I love that contact with students and helping them in their career. Yeah, and so let's go into that now at the moment because this is kind of some positive way that you're helping younger researchers or undergraduates look at Mm. scientific careers. How did you get into that? Uh, Well... I was going to say by accident, but actually it wasn't really by accident. There was a series of things that came before that. I mean, what attracted me to this program is that it's quite unique. So in science, we don't traditionally do internships. So in nursing, law and engineering, that's very standard to do an internship program. But in science, we don't have anything like that. With your training that you get as a science undergrad, you can really go into so many different careers. And that's great, but it's also really, really hard for students because they then don't know what is the logical next step because there are so many steps after a science degree. Whereas with nursing, I'm taking nursing as an example, then clearly, you know, that's more of a direct career path. So part of the aim of this um, internship subject is to give students an experience of, of what a real working lab is like. And some might decide that they don't want to do that and they want to go into research or some might decide that they want to go and do a master's in physiology. Um, You know, for example, I've had students go and do that. 
or pharmacy or whatever, but I really am keen to help out younger people in STEM. And I think that this is a good way to do that and to give them some of that like open their eyes to what is possible. Exactly. I mean, I'm assuming that it's open to anybody. Do you have an even mix of males and females in these internship roles? So that is a really, really good question. And we've definitely looked at that. Sometimes we have more women than men, and I'm not sure why that is. And I have read that in science degrees, you do actually have more men than women anyway, but it's that women don't go on and continue and don't get those higher positions like professor and associate professor and things. And so that's why we need to do a lot like the Sage Athena Swan project where we're equaling out that a bit more. But in the undergrad level, we actually do have either more women than men or at least an equal sort of representation. So I would say, yes, we do, but we we do have slightly more women than men, but that may be because that's who does the course anyway exactly so it doesn't seem to be biased towards anywhere it's only biased because of the amount of people in the course right yeah I think so but but having said that it's something that I'm very conscious of and I'm also conscious of offering the program to international students as well as domestic students because I wouldn't want international students to be unfairly or unconsciously biased against. So we do try and be really aware of those biases that can occur. So as part of the internship program, can you kind of go in depth in terms of what you're trying to train these people in and what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, so the students who come through the program, they're studying a Bachelor of Biomedical Science or Medical Science. And so, as I said earlier, the pathways after you do a science degree are so broad. There's so many options to you. If you're doing a biomedical science degree or a medical science degree, you might go into research. You might go into a pathology lab and more diagnostics. You might go and do another sort of related master's like pharmacy. But you know, there's so many options. And so the aim of the program is to give students, particularly those students who think that they might want to go into pathology. The other thing is that a lot of people don't know what (laughs) pathology really is. They're the unsung heroes, I think. And particularly with this coronavirus epidemic, we've seen how important diagnostic testing is and how important it is to test, test, test. You know, we hear that a lot and people are being encouraged to come and get tested. And what happens to those samples is that they go to a pathology lab and they get tested. My students are going into those labs and they're getting that experience, that real world experience of this is what it's like. You receive a patient sample and then you, you know, depending on what the doctors ask for, you do X, Y, Z test and then report that back to the doctor. So they're doing a really, really important job, but they're kind of behind the scenes. Mm. So you basically what you're doing is you're giving real world practical experience to these science students. I remember for my science degree, I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew that I didn't want to work specifically in a lab, but I also knew that, you know, I really wanted to finish my degree and kind of have something to do with science. Fortunately, I moved into diagnostics myself. So very interesting. But on the commercial side, so look, 
what you're doing though, in my degree, I was never given the opportunity to have any kind of inkling of what it would be like either as a researcher or as in a commercial aspect as well. So it's really good and very important work that you're doing. So thank you very much. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Can I just then move on then? I mean, as a mid-career researcher, I have had plenty of exposure to mid-career researchers and I know that a lot of them have to push at this point to move on with their career and have you found anything in particular that is difficult at the moment and has been a bit of a struggle during your career and more importantly how have you gotten around it and how have you moved past those struggles? Mm, I think probably progressing in your career is a challenge. There's not a set sort of structure like there might be in a company where you can move around within that company, a large company. And so taking the logical next step, that's a little bit challenging. And I'm not core university staff, so I'm funded by research money. So that's contract. And so you've always got a little bit of uncertainty there about, well, if the funding doesn't come in, then do I have a salary? Uh, and so I think a lot of scientists who are mid-career and early career are in the same boat. Yeah, in terms of getting past that, I think what's been important for me is a few things. One thing is trying to get past my imposter syndrome. So recognizing that I'm stunting my own growth in a way and I have been and calling that out to myself and, and being aware of that and then pushing forward past that. Can I, can uh, I go and, to that point before you move on to the next one? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, we should really be addressing this. Mm. It's almost as if we uh, work against ourselves as female yeah. to work around our career. Remember I had one light bulb moment where I sat there and I spoke to a PhD student and his supervisor and you know, told them that I constantly doubt myself. And both mm. of them looked at me and they said, well, we never do. And it was... Mm. Honestly, a light bulb moment where they said, you know, we just, no, we don't doubt ourselves. It was implicit that they mm. knew where they were going and knew what direction and had this complete confidence in themselves. And of course, as women, we don't necessarily have that. In fact, most of us doubt ourselves all the time. So can you mm. tell me about, I'm going to delve a little bit more into it and tell me <laughs> how that has affected you in your career, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that you tell that story. And I think a lot of people have that same experience. But imagine the freedom if you didn't doubt yourself, if you weren't the first person to say in your mind, oh, hang on, no, I can't do that. Wait, I can't talk about that. I'm not an expert on that. Imagine if you just could do it without second guessing yourself. And so that's something that I work on and I'm continually working on. I think that probably has hindered me a little bit in my career. For me, it's been really important to have a community like I'm really involved in Franklin Women because it's been so good to have that support there and to have those people who are behind me cheering me all the way and like, I know you can do this and having that tribe. And I was part of the Franklin Women Mentoring Program last year and that's also been something that's really, really helped me. So has the imposter syndrome, have you always known about it or did you identify it more as part of this program? Oh, I definitely think it's helped me to understand that that's what's happening. I think imposter syndrome is something that's been talked about, I'm not sure for how long, but for me, it's been the last probably a few years where I've read different things about it. And I'm like, oh, that happens to me too. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's much more common than we would 
probably realize and, and much more common than we talk about. Would you be able to go into a few of those things that have happened where you suddenly think, oh, I am putting myself down or I'm feeling like an imposter and I really shouldn't do? Yeah, well, probably the most recent example is with all of the coronavirus and the COVID pandemic, I have had a lot of media requests and I haven't had any before this year, but suddenly in February and March, I was getting five or six media requests every day. And that was, you know, very scary for me, but also it's something that I really love doing. And I think it's important to have diversity of representation of different scientists in the media. But every time I would get one of those, I would think in my head, wait, I'm not an expert. Why, you know, what makes me think I can talk about this? But actually, and now I'm getting a bit more comfortable with the fact that I am an expert. <laughs> I'm not an expert on, you know, coronaviruses, but really no one is. Like no one could have funded their research before 2019 or 2020 by working on coronavirus only. So I've definitely come around to the fact that I'm, I am an expert, but it's still something that I have to kind of fight with my own brain about. Let's talk about that then. Coronavirus is very topical at the moment. Sasha, we're very pleased mm. to have you on at the moment. So, you know, as it all kicked off in February for us in Australia, mm. what happened with you guys in your lab and how did you guys switch towards working from, you know, cold and flu to coronavirus? It wasn't an easy switch. And then as you were doing this, you know, how did you become the spokesperson for the lab? I mean, it wasn't too difficult. I think the difficult thing in switching was that it's a pandemic virus and so it requires a PC3 level facility. So we needed to have a higher level containment lab than, than we do have here. And so we've been collaborating with the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales who, who have a PC3 lab. So that's been fantastic. You know, it was a little bit of definitely a learning process in the beginning and we didn't know a lot. Now we know a bit more. We still don't know everything and we're learning things every day and there's thousands of papers about SARS-CoV-2 now and lots of papers in preprint and there's new stuff every day. So there's a lot to comprehend in your mind and a lot of stuff to keep on top of. But I feel like things have settled down a bit more now and we're a bit more confident about what we're doing and going forward. It's quite straightforward. How did it come about that you became the spokesperson for the lab? So I think it came about because I had been interested in science communication. I'd wanted to do some media stuff, but there's never really been the opportunity and I wrote up with um, one of my collaborators and mentors, we wrote up some guidelines around quarantining if you have SARS-CoV-2. And so as part of that, I talked to the UNSW media office and my contact there started to put me forward for things. I was very nervous about it, but she said, you know what, it's going to be fine. You'll be really good. And she didn't have anyone who had had a negative experience. So everything will be fine. And I was like, okay, I'll just kind of see how I go. And that's definitely been my experience that it's scary, but it's, yeah, exhilarating at the same time. And, and again, I've got that undercurrent of I really think it's important to have a diversity and to show women in STEM. And, and I've always got that in my mind as well. So that pushes me forward to do it. Mm. I want to come back to that point, the women in STEM and this undercurrent that you're talking about. But what I'd really like to do, first of all, is just delve into that support network that you talked about with Franklin Women 
um, mentoring, and in particular, somebody like your sponsor, your media sponsor, who has got your back basically and giving you that confidence to move forward. And this is the next step in your career as far as I can see. It's just boosting you towards the next role or the next step. You know, how important really is it to have those people, those mentors, those trusted advisors and those sponsors to have your back at this time, particularly mid-career where, you know, maybe you didn't need it so much as an undergraduate or a PhD because quite self-directed at that stage. Let's kind of discuss about those people at the moment and their influence on you. Mm. Yeah, so for me, it's really been very important to have those sponsors. I definitely have had several people in my life who've put me forward. And so a sponsor is someone who will speak for you or speak about you and put you forward for different positions and opportunities when you're not in the room. And so in an academic structure, that's really, really important because you don't always get invited to all of those meetings where those opportunities come up. So it's important to have those trusted sort of sponsors and and people who will really put you forward. And how you develop those, I think, is, (laughs) I think, by volunteering yourself for different opportunities and things that come up making connections and and networking. Um, I know networking is a little bit scary for people, but I think it's something that is important to do. And it is a skill you can learn. It's not always easy to walk into a room where you don't know anyone. It is very scary. Where I work in academia, it's important to sort of meet those key players and have them on side. And so I've definitely had sponsors who have put me forward for things, but also mentors. I think you mentioned as well, mentors are so important and I've had the opportunity and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to participate in the Franklin Women Mentoring Program as well, which does pair you with a mentor and also it's run by Serendus who do a whole lot of other training in terms of your skills and diversity and inclusion and things like that. So let's talk about the Franklin Women Program. I mean, I've known about it for the last couple of years. So can you tell me about you know, what was involved with it and the learnings that you got out of it? I believe it's more specifically for mid-career because similar to what your aim is, we know that, you know, a lot of women, we lose them in that mid-career time and they're not progressing to be leaders, even though they have all the capability there. So it's about supporting those women and lifting them. And so they um, pair you with a mentor, but that mentor is not within your organisation. So they're external to you. Um, I was paired with someone at the University of Sydney and someone in quite a different field to me. So the advice that you get or the mentoring that you get is really unbiased. The person that you're matched with doesn't have any kind of bias towards what you should do or what you shouldn't do. So I think that's really important because building that trust and that ability to be able to, you know, say anything to that person and knowing that there's that trust there and there's no kind of implication for being honest is really really useful. And then the other part of it is some training, which Surrendous Leadership and Coaching Company do, which is fantastic. And there's a lot of work that you should do on yourself and a lot of time to reflect and journal and do those action items that you talked about with your mentor each time. So there's quite a lot involved in it. Fabulous. Well, as well as like learning that you had a bit of an imposter syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Defining it a little bit more, what other learnings did you get out of it? 
Um, I think it was very useful in that my mentor would ask me lots of questions and she would not jump in with an answer or anything. She'd just ask a question and then wait for me to answer and wait for me to kind of sink in. Your mentor is really there to challenge you. And so sometimes they ask you something that's not comfortable for you, but that's where you start to get the answers and that's where you start to grow and push yourself out of that comfort zone. That's really what was very useful for me. Hmm. And so you're a mid-career researcher. You're exactly the person that we're kind of aiming at. My point is, what's the next steps? Obviously, coronavirus has kind of opened up a whole new can mm. of for you and you've world has obviously been made bigger as a result of this pandemic. Where's the next steps? And more importantly, what do you need as a mid-career researcher to get there? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. And as I said before, I'm not a really good career planner. Um, (laughs) So what I would really like is a little bit of time to reflect. Now is not the right time because it's really, really busy. And I'm very fortunate in that way, but I'd like a little bit of time to reflect on that. And yeah, definitely all of this media has opened up some opportunities for me. I think going forward, I'd like to explore that, do a bit more and maybe find a mentor who can help me with that side of things because not all academics will have that experience so some will really lean into media opportunities and some will not so I'd like to find someone who has a bit more experience in that way I'm going to do a little bit of coaching again supported by Franklin Women so so grateful for that yeah and I think that being an expert and being comfortable with that and being comfortable with being a leader in this space is something I'd like to lean into and I'd like to try and learn more about that and be a bit more comfortable with that. Sounds to me like you're already there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably. Uh, so it's more of a mindset thing maybe. That, yeah and you know as, as women we also need to have that support and guidance in order to be able to accept the positions that we're in and mm. take ownership of the achievements that we've made so far so yeah I think Sasha you're one of those people. <laughs> oh, thank you Catherine I appreciate that I'm going to use that next time the imposter comes up. <laughs> So I'm going to wrap it up, Sasha. It's been a pleasure to talk to you at the moment. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Do you have any tricks before we go about in order to make sure that our female leaders are heard and mm. that we address the equity and make sure that there are enough leaders and mentors and women to look up to to make sure that we have some parity in terms of our leadership capacities mm. what else do you think we need to do as a as a network of people that we can work towards I mean, I think we always need to keep pushing because we're not there yet with uh, STEM diversity and and equity. And so we, unfortunately, it's kind of up to us to keep pushing and to keep pushing for that diversity and that equal representation, be it in the media, be it on academic boards, be it corporate boards. And if we are there supporting each other and we're in a group like Franklin Women and we're all like-minded, then I feel like we're built up by that. We can gain confidence from that. And certainly for me, I 
you know, I know that I've always got people behind me with invisible little pom-poms <laughs> cheering for me. So, and calling things out when we don't see equal representation of women in the media or on COVID response teams, things like that, calling it out and sharing it with your networks, your social networks and talking about it like we are now. I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, yes, the COVID response team our current government is a little bit weighted towards oil and gas industries, I think, as opposed to <laughs> men and females. But either way, yeah, yeah. yeah, I agree that our leadership teams need to be balanced. And in order to do that, we need mm. to make sure that there's enough people in the wings to be able to call on at a later date. And it's not as if the expertise is not in the room. Mm. Okay, thank you so much for your time, Sasha. It's cool. Yeah, thank you. And join us again next week for a next podcast for the STEM Equity Network series. Thank you.